Hello, I'm Katie Jarvis. This week, Real Foot Forward is made possible by our friends at CrossFit Auto Body, located in Union City. CrossFit Auto Body is the perfect place to begin your fitness journey. Come in and become part of the CrossFit community. Visit uccrossfitautobody.com for more information. Welcome to Real Foot Forward from Discovery Park of America, located up here in the corner of beautiful West Tennessee. Every day at our museum and Heritage Park, we inspire children and adults to see beyond. And each week, we do the same thing here on our podcast. In today's episode, Scott sits down with Bill Hickerson and talks about the history of the West Tennessee Regional Arts Center. And later, join us as we discover something new here at Discovery Park of America. I'm Scott Williams, host of Real Foot Forward, where each week we celebrate our little section of the South, and just like at our museum and heritage park here in Union City, Tennessee, we explore the culture, the spirit, the accomplishments, and the heritage of West Tennessee. Today we're going to be talking about fine arts and rural communities with Bill Hickerson, who is the executive director, uh, chief poobah, the king, I don't know all the titles, but he's with the West Tennessee Regional Art Center in the town of Humboldt, Tennessee, um, which is an amazing town. I know when I was growing up, they used to um, have shoe stores there, and my mother and my grandmother would always go to Humboldt to go buy shoes. So, um, And now they have a fine arts museum there. So welcome, Bill. Thank you, Scott. Good to be here. Um, I know that the original collection, and then you've supplemented since then and, and um, uh, gotten other other art, but the, the original collection was donated by Dr. Benjamin and Gertrude Caldwell, and their mission is incredible to me. It is for the purpose of cultural education for people of all ages throughout West Tennessee. It's very much like the mission of Discovery Park of America. Um, you have oil paintings, sculpture, watercolor, drawings, prints, lithographs, pastels. It goes on and on and on. There's a lot of folk art there. There's a lot of outsider art. First of all, tell me a little bit about how you ended up at the center. It was uh, sort of a, an unplanned journey. I um, liked to paint and draw when I was a child, and my, my mother thought I should have piano lessons, and I never practiced, So, but she noticed I was drawing all the time, so I I was fortunate enough to have private lessons as a child. That was a good mother to notice. She, she paid attention, yep, for that sure. that was good. Yeah. So um, when I got to college, uh, she kept asking, are you not taking any art classes? And I said, oh, those people are kind of strange over in that department. I don't know. Of course, I know now it would have fit right in. But anyway, <laughs> I, so I had to put that, or I put that on hold. And then I, I ended up in retail management for about 20 years and had a sort of a a change thrust upon me because the the men's division of the, the company that I worked for was um, was closed. So I had a bit of a severance package, and I thought, well, I'm at a crossroads. What should I do? I thought, well, art, because that's what I grew up liking to do, and I still loved it. And I now, got, were you doing it like on the side while you were working, or had you just literally put it all away? I just really put it aside for the most part. Mm. Uh, I took a, you know just a very few classes, but um, and it took something negative happening for a lot of really good positive yeah, to come out of it. Yeah, because, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to walk away from jobs with insurance and benefits, and that's that's still an issue for a lot of people. But 
I was, anyway, I was very fortunate. I just started signing up for every class and workshop that I could find and met some, some wonderful artists and um, both professional and amateur in this area. Got um, very involved with the Jackson Art Association, was president of that group for a while. And part of what I was doing as a volunteer was uh, writing grants and um, helping organize shows and publicizing them and helping with reception. So when I heard there was a job opening at the fairly new at the time, West Tennessee Regional Arts Center. And were you, were you, where were you living? Were you living in a rural in, community? In Jackson. In I, Jackson? I grew up okay. in a very rural community of Linville, Tennessee, in Giles County. But okay. anyway, back to back okay. to West Tennessee. So um, I heard that there was an opening, and I applied because basically I would be getting paid at least something for doing things I was doing anyway and loved to do. And sure. It's it's been a great experience. And so so the at the time had the building already been refurbished or was it still in state of disrepair? No, it um, it had been completed. I think for about four years. Okay. It, it opened to the public as a museum in 1994. And, and I'd originally been, it had been the courthouse. Well, it's not the county seat. The courthouse, beautiful courthouse, is in Trenton, Tennessee, but okay. it was the city hall okay. and uh, the, the large upstairs space which you have visited. Our main gallery was formerly the courtroom. The mayor's office was on the main floor, and uh, and the jail was downstairs, which wow. uh, still looks pretty much as it did, yeah. except with the graffiti was painted over. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Since children were coming to yeah, the building. That's right. So you walked in, and there already was... Um, art was there already a lot of art there? Or? I went first as a visitor, yeah. and I hate to say that my expectations were not all that high, and I was just blown away when I saw, you know, the architecture and the quality of the art, and um, I felt as if I were in a, a museum in a much larger city. Oh, no question about that. So, Dr. Benjamin and Gertrude Caldwell. They're right. the ones who are responsible for, for yes. what you found when you arrived. Right. Can you talk a little bit about them and their vision and how sure. that came to be? Well, he, Dr. Caldwell grew up just right down the street on Main Street in a beautiful old uh, red brick house with white columns. And he um, said later that he liked to draw as a child and paint. But, and his family would go to Memphis and Nashville, but it was usually for a doctor's appointment or to go shopping or something. So they really, they just didn't visit museums. And um, he just thought that, I should back up a little bit, the building was being renovated. That was a historic preservation project, which could have very easily not happened. It could have been what, what, a parking lot. Who kept it from being knocked down? Just some some very... Hardworking, concerned local citizens. Good for them. I believe it was a bicentennial project. But the goal were first was just to save the building, to get a new roof on it, because the windows had fallen out and some were boarded up and the roof was leaking and pigeons were flying around inside and it was mm. quite a mess. But the bank, which is still next door, but now at that point it was Merchant State Bank and they had purchased it for storage, record storage. And I was told storing riding lawnmowers, been repossessed, all sorts of things. But they decided it was just a, you know too much upkeep for, for the use they were getting from it. So they offered it back to the city if it would be renovated. And people started working hard, applying for grants, fundraising. and Thank goodness. Hats off to all those people who did that. They paid it forward for all yes, the people to did. get to enjoy and, it today. Um, okay, so back to Dr. Caldwell. Right. And he had he was an OBGYN, and he one of his 
loyal patients was was driving from Humboldt to Nashville, where his office was, to be treated. And she mentioned to him that this wonderful old building was being restored. And I think it was always planned that it would have the Chamber of Commerce in the building. And um, they were moving the History Museum from a small space at the public library to this building. But basically, I think it was just going to be a space for public events and that sort of thing. As I said, the goal was just basically saving the building and bringing it up to standards for accessibility. So when Dr. Caldwell heard about that, he told the lady that he and his wife had been looking for a way to give back to West Tennessee and that they you know, had, a, had amassed a tremendous collection of art, all genres and antiques and silver. He literally wrote the book on Tennessee silver. But in a way, in a very, very generous gesture, they donated several hundred pieces of art. He stipulated that the, it would need to be temperature and humidity controlled, of course, and they, they wanted to save the, the tall original windows, although they were replaced, but they're still a part of the, the look of the building. So they've been treated with the UV protectant, so we, we hope we're not doing any harm. So far, the collection seems to be holding up well. So sure. we're, we're honored to be stewards of that. I mean, it's almost like art is an <clears throat> understatement. When you look at the collection and the uh, pieces that are included Many that are on display, not everything's on display. Is that no? There's a lot. Fortunately, of we have are- a pretty nice storage space with rolling racks. So um, sometimes we have to take everything down that's um, in the main gallery. Then we do temporary exhibits, several of those a year. But Dr. Caldwell particularly wanted art to be accessible to children in rural West Tennessee. And I think that's important. Um, what what do you, what do you think is the role of art? Mm-hmm. For you know, how does how does art help a community, or a student, or an adult? I think it can inspire children of all ages, and uh, we had a session on advocacy at the Tennessee Association of Meeting uh, Conference last week in Clarksville, and um, you know, we talked. It does. We there is certainly an economic development factor, but also it's just part of what education should be. Because people need to have a cultural education as well as learning the the usual skills that we focus on. Um, let's let's talk about some of the pieces that are that are in your collection. I know that um, you have uh, some red grooms pieces, who's is quite an interesting yes, artist. Tell us a little bit about him and mm-hmm. also the work that you have of his. Mm-hmm. For anyone who doesn't know about red grooms, he's probably the most well-known and um, successful artist um, who has been produced by the state of Tennessee. He grew up in Nashville. He did have relatives in Gibson County, by the way. Mm. Uh, He and Dr. Caldwell became extremely good friends. Uh, Dr. Caldwell was, I believe, in his wedding to Lysian Luong, and um, they built vacation homes side-by-side, traveled together, and so Dr. Caldwell liked to buy art from people he liked and admired. So he had collected quite a few pieces. So we have, an, in fact, one is an original painting that was um, sent directly to us from Red Groom's New York studio. I was wow. kind of pleasantly surprised when I got a call from one of his assistants. But his um, mother's first cousin was Evelyn, nicknamed Babe Harwood, mm-hmm. who lived in Trenton, Tennessee and lived to be 106 years old. Wow. So, And she was his mother's cousin. So um, he decided as a memorial to her that he would send that gift to us to add to our collection, I suspect prompted by Dr. Caldwell, but uh, it was a portrait of Martha Washington, which 
seems appropriate since uh, Mrs. Harwood apparently was very active in DAR and oh, Teapot excellent. Museum and yeah. so on for, for many years. What um, are some of the other pieces that people might recognize? Right. Uh, one thing that we I've had people maybe from the Memphis area would walk in and see Waiting Up for Lady by Carol Clover, and they said, Oh my goodness, I, we thought you'd have to go to the Brooks Museum to see something like this. So he's he's one of the the artists that people recognize and a lot of people followed and collect. And then you have a lot of um, outsider art? We we do. We have a lot more than we did <laughs> when I first arrived there. And I've it uh, has been something I've had to uh, familiar myself of me or rise myself with and as I learn more about the artist and why they created and how they created and I admire the way they use whatever materials were available and just we're very creative and it's very original and it's honest and um, Dr. Well, Caldwell I, was a huge collector of it. When and, I was there um, I saw that you had a, a show of uh, uh, outsider artist Hattie Marshall Duncan. Right. Um, fascinating pieces um, I uh, just loved every single one of the pieces she did. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about her and where did um, how did, how did her work end up in your gallery? Right, she has had two temporary ex- exhibits um, at the West Tennessee Regional Arts Center. She lives right here in Jackson. Um, a lot of your listeners might remember her baby sister Pamela Marshall, who used to be on WBBJ. But she's from a family of 13 children, had polio when she was a little girl, but always was interested in art. And part of what she likes to do is to talk to groups of children and to try to inspire them to be creative and to to understand they don't have to be able to have expensive art classes. They don't have to go to an art supply store and buy artist materials. She uses, you know, she, she says she makes art from trash, but she, you know, shredded newspapers and all kinds of what anything that she sees, she kind of envisions it turning into a piece of art. So she's, did, did she's having, a true original. Did having her show there help further her career as an artist? Well, she she would tell you that it has, and <laughs> I'd like to think so. We were yeah. we were fortunate that, our, that we had a reception for the Tennessee Arts Commission board and staff when they met in um, in Jackson a few years ago, and they were overwhelmed by Hattie's work and um, so she had an exhibition there and that led to her having her work exhibited at the Tennessee residence and I think the Haslam's ended up with a piece or two and um, now she's she's doing very very well when when you're out when you're out and about do you keep your eyes open for new artists whether they're outsider artists or artists of any kind do you look for somebody are you going to try to discover the next the next Hattie Marshall Duncan well, I don't think there's another Hattie Marshall Duncan or anyone like her. But yes, I'm always interested in seeing new, you know, new work and finding out about artists I didn't know were in West Tennessee. And I, I do feel that we're we're fortunate to be able to fulfill the role that we do because I know we've been a, a resource for a lot of colleges and universities, people who are taking online classes because part of Quite a few classes is to go and do an experience report where they have to visit a museum. And so many come in and say, we didn't know this place existed, you know, because we're often called a hidden treasure and we don't want to be hidden. But anyway, thank you for helping us get the word out. There may be, I mean, there may be a lot of people out there who haven't really visited an art gallery. And they said they probably wouldn't have, but they enjoyed it so much. And a lot of times they'll come back and bring family members. Right. Even if you haven't, even if you don't think that you would like art mm-hmm. there is a there is something to the experience 
visiting a visiting an art gallery and looking at the work and learning about the motivation. You guys, I particularly really love uh, personally all the folk art that you mm-hmm. have. Um, mm-hmm. Do any of the folk artists come to mind that are your particular favorites? Oh my gosh, I have have quite a few. Um, Jimmy Lee Suddeth is one that comes to mind. He was grew up in Fayette, Alabama, and he created paintings with mud. Like a lot of little children like to make mud pies or finger and finger paint, but he combined that and continued until lived, he lived into his 90s, and mm-hmm. he was still producing artwork by finger painting on mud. He found out if he added some molasses or some brown sugar or whatever, he, that would they would stay on longer. So he continued to do that and started to incorporate Leftover house paint, again, just using what was available. Yeah. Who's, who's another one? Gosh, there's some. Um, William Edmondson is probably the most, most famous oh, yeah. because um, sure. several, several years ago, Cheekwood did a retrospective of his work. And I think he had almost been forgotten at that point. But he was, um, he was the first African-American artist to have his work exhibited at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. He was discovered that led to that by an art, by a, actually a, a writer who was there from Harper's Bazaar magazine in Nashville to do a, an article. And somebody told her about his work. And he was one of those artists who had you know, no training, completely self-taught. And he said he had a, a dream or a vision that he should start to be a sculptor. And he would find limestone left over at construction sites and just use whatever tools he already had. And he carved angels and small animals. The one we have on display is a large coffee cup. Mm-hmm. You remember that one? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So he's, um, yeah, yeah. He's, he's one Most of those probably big wouldn't, names. wouldn't realize that you could see that in Humboldt, right. Tennessee. And he, and he was the son of formerly enslaved people. Right. And, of course, he would hardly got anything for his work when he's alive, but those who, who invested in his work 20 years ago have been very glad that they did. And, and we love the idea that uh, students can come, to, as I said, and do their experience reports because often they'll say, I was so happy when I saw that there was a museum in Humboldt that we could mm-hmm. visit. We thought we'd have to go to Memphis or Nashville. Right. And, and who knows what kind of lives you're changing, you know, kids who come in there. Who's, some of the families may be struggling to put food mm-hmm. on the table. You that, know, there, there are some areas um, in the area that are somewhat depressed. And so you get, you get some kids who could visit there. You could absolutely make a right. big difference in their lives. And that's one of the reasons because, you know, with so many children, you know, having to be on free lunch programs and so on, they don't have even a few dollars to come. So we, the board of directors voted a few years ago just to do away with the admission fee. And so it's free? It's free. We, we you know, are grateful for donations, and we, a lot of people are very generous in what they drop in the collection boxes, so it actually works out about the same. But we just didn't want, you know, the cost to ever be a deterrent to a child getting to come there. And everyone gets in on the act of art there. The last time I was there, I believe your mayor had a piece on display, right? <laughs> yeah, he's he's great. He he loves um, loves history. He loves art. He says that working in wood carving is um, his therapy. And uh, his, our first lady, his wife Carol, said that she also participates because she cleans up the mess every time See? he works on a piece. There you go. I mean, he may but, be the next big artist that you discover. Yeah, but he loves to bring people over. In fact, he brought some um, some uh, people who were there for the Tina Turner Festival a few months ago. 
And um, one lady from New York State sort of freaked out because she said there were ghosts in the building. You know, I, don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but anyway, she she certainly thought it was. So what's what's coming up? I know you guys. You always I know from social media always have something you're planning or cooking up. What's 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 coming up next? Well, coming up next is the uh, congressional art competition for uh, Congressman Kustoff's district. So there'll be work from many counties on display there. And that's just a very short exhibit toward the end of April. And we will have the awards reception. And how many, he's planning how many, to attend. Do you feel like there are a lot of artists in this area? Um, yes, yes. Um, I mean, of course, it's hard to compare to the number of artists in one area to another. But right. do you feel like you run into, in the business that you're in, do you run into a lot of people in this area who consider themselves artists? I've been amazed by the number of people who are creative in all sorts of ways and one of them is typically visual art yeah it is fascinating to me yeah. the the uh, amount of creative energy and mm-hmm. th- that happens here right whether people are sculpting or painting or you know mm-hmm. honestly creating art out of found objects in their front yard there is a real sense of creativity mm-hmm. you know that permeates uh west tennessee that i've always uh found fascinating right. um so if somebody wanted to find out more about um, more about um, your incredible art center, they should go to where? To the website, which is wtrac.tn.org. We have a Facebook page, which I need to Or they can refresh, just Google. Yes, they can just, just Google. Yeah. And, they'll, and they'll find it. Um, yeah. That's what I've been doing. Um, yeah, because I could tell you knew all about us. So I, I, mean, I suspected and, that's you how know you what, knew. Before we go, I should also point out, but I think it's been put put off, off. Um, 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 story. It's not. It's no longer on display. It's been put off display. You're resting it, as they say in the museum business. Mm-hmm. Is your collection of frogs? Because <laughs> my dad, you know, collects frogs because it means forever rely on God. And so he was very excited when I brought him there to check out the art, and he saw that. You, there must have been 2,000 frogs in that case. Yes. It, we're told at uh, one point was, I think, the third largest collection of frog figurines in the world. You, because, you, mean you let two other people be? we didn't be? have them all on display. Oh, you know, there were okay. more in See, the basement. If you and put if, them all, you've been the yeah. biggest in the world. And don't, don't tell... Anybody. Don't tell my board members, but if you'll just stop by one day, I'll hook you up. I can send <laughs> Dad lots of frogs. No, we have. My family has way more frogs than we need. But, so, yeah. thank you so much for doing this with us could today. I, could I say one? Yeah, more thing? You can, um, yeah, absolutely. You made me think of something that Ann Pope, who's the executive director of the Tennessee Arts Commission, said when she visited the West Tennessee Regional Arts Center a couple of years ago, when we were working on a study for the impact of the arts. Mm-hmm economic impact. And uh, she looked around and she said, Bill, I don't think there's a comparable place like this anywhere in any rural place in Tennessee. So, wow. That's, that's great. One and of those I things would, we love to hear. I, I'm telling you, I would agree with that 100%. And I cannot tell people enough how much they should go and check this out if they have not. It is amazing that it's right here in West Tennessee and they absolutely need to check it out. Thank you so much for helping us spread the word. You are very welcome. And now Andrew Gibson is going to paint us a picture of discovery as he shows us a little something interesting he found going on behind the scenes at Discovery Park of America. All right. Thank you, Scott. I am Andrew Gibson with the Education Department here at beautiful Discovery Park of America. 
And today I am joined with Gary Dudley at Docent here, um, who will be sharing a story uh, that I'm sure all of you are going to find fascinating. So, so take it away, Gary. I'm, I'm eager to learn. I know everyone else is too. Okay. Well, if you've ever visited where many people have visited Discovery Park before, if you go in our Mirror Ridge area, you'll notice that in the C. Smithy building, there is a moonshine still kind of back in the corner of one of the buildings. And... Although whiskey making and, and alcohol making, you know, homemade wise is nothing new. I mean, we've been doing it in America since our beginning. I mean, George Washington himself uh, did his own rye whiskey at Mount Vernon uh, and probably did one of the setups similar to what we have. Um, there was a point in time in our country's history where, known as the Progressive Era, that there was a group of people that they wanted to get rid of alcohol. Uh, alcohol was in their mind. It did. Uh, it was. It created a lot of problems family-wise. It created a lot of problems in the home, uh, and it was just something they wanted to get rid of. And it was mainly the anti-saloon league that did that. And they were started in 1893 in Oberlin, Ohio. And they actually started out as a state organization at first, and their whole primary purpose was to shut down the saloons, taverns, and bars, and end the consumption of alcohol and the sale of it. So what wound up what happening was during that time where they're attempting to uh, enact prohibition, they tried to do it through a lot of political means, but there were some individuals who kind of took measures into their own hands a little, a little more drastic. Uh, Carrie Nation was one. Uh, she was the wife of a minister in Kansas, and her husband gets hooked on alcohol and becomes an alcoholic. So she winds up starting to go into bars and taverns dressed in all black, and she'll read hymns, uh, sing hymns, read scripture, uh, kind of cause a commotion trying to get the people to run out of the saloon. And then she eventually stepped it up a notch where she started carrying a hatchet. And she would do her hatcherations, is what they were called. And she'd literally go in there and do the same thing she'd been doing, but she'd start breaking up liquor bottles, uh, busting up beer kegs, anything she could, glasses, anything she could to smash it to uh, mess up the saloon, mess up their business. Uh, so so where did this happen at? Um, this was in Kansas. This is in Kansas. She okay. was in Kansas, right. and she primarily did it in Kansas. The bars actually started advertising uh, all nations welcome except Carrie was kind of their, <laughs> their thing. They the advertised marketing it. scheme. Yeah. Uh, and, and this was around, you said, 1893? Around 1893, 1895. Because uh, uh, in 1895, the Ohio League, that's the Anti-Saloon League out of the Ohio, actually joins forces with the chapter in Washington, D.C., and they get together and they actually form uh, the American Anti-Saloon League. And in 1913... Uh, after years of doing prohibition rallies, parades, passing out tracts, uh, they have a parade for a prohibition rally in Washington, D.C. And after that, their founder, uh, Pearlie Baker, who was a Methodist minister, takes what uh, is a proposal for what would become the 18th Amendment, which would be the amendment that would create prohibition in the United States. Um, so they did that. So along comes 1916, and after all of these years of um, people fighting for prohibition, and you had your supporters and your detractors of you had your dries and your wets, and uh, basically in 1916, a lot of the different states had already uh, 
done anti-saloon legislation. So they closed most of the bars down, and even some had gone further to just stop the manufacture of alcohol together. So 1916 comes along, and, and they've done that. And then 1919, uh, the Dries, as they were known, which was the pro people for prohibition, get a two-thirds majority in Congress, and they take the proposed 18th Amendment that they're working on, and they vote it into law, and it becomes an amendment in our Constitution for prohibition. And prohibition doesn't really take effect until January of 1920, so there were still people buying alcohol prior to it. Uh, so as long as you had the money, you could buy it up. Like J.D. Rockefeller bought like thousands of dollars worth of cases of champagne for his parties. Herbert Hoover, who was president at the time, actually kept a stash of whiskey and beer in the White House during Prohibition era. Um, the problem with Prohibition was that although it officially became the law of the land in January of 1920, there was another portion of the law called the Volstead Act that a representative out of Minnesota uh, started, and that gave the government the power to enforce the prohibition. So they started sending out prohibition agents like Izzy Einstein. Uh, he and his partner, Mo Smith, who had been vaudeville actors, uh, started going around to bars and saloons and some of these places that were selling uh, liquor illegally. It's like speakeasies. Uh, speakeasies, and, okay. that's, and that's definitely one of the things, the speakeasies, and they, or even a diner, because you'd go into a diner in some cities and the cold was, hey, can I have a cup of cold tea? And that meant you wanted a beer or you wanted a drink. So here's Einstein, and he's an, he's an unusual character. He spoke seven or eight languages. Uh, was a master of disguises. He would disguise himself from anything from a Chinese laundryman to a to a Texas cattleman and go in and could speak all of these languages and he would go into places like the place where, like the diner where you could ask for a cup of cold tea and go, hey, we're going to get a drink. And as a matter of fact, there's one situation where he does that. He goes into a place that's doing that. He gets into an argument with the guy that's serving there and says, no, I'm not going to serve you. You're uh, Izzy Epstein, that that probation, uh, probation agent. And he says, no, 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 it's not me. It's Einstein. And so the guy says, well, I'll bet you it's, it's Epstein. And he says, okay. So the guy pours him a drink of alcohol, and he goes, it's Einstein. And he had a catchphrase with, with his arrest, too, and he would go, sad news here, buddy. And he, <laughs> you're under arrest for prohibition. He was... <laughs> He was a character, to say the least, and he and his partner did probably over 4,000 arrests during Prohibition, some places as many as 48 a day, uh, because as you said, speakeasies, they were everywhere in Prohibition, uh, and uh, a speakeasy could be anywhere. Uh, it could be a, a diner, it could be a back of a cleaners, it could be a warehouse, it could be an abandoned building, you just had to have the right password to get in. Um, the problem with prohibition that came into play was here's all these speakeasies that are coming into play. And then on top of that, you've got bootleggers with like with our moonshine still here that are making homemade whiskey. Well, they're not only making homemade whiskey, but they're also buying the premium stuff 
because you could still get premium stuff in like Havana, Cuba, down the Bahamas. There was even a couple of islands off the coast of Canada that were still French controlled where you could get good wine. So people were still buying it. Um, even beer was hard to come around. World War, World War One had done that because the fact of the matter that the anti, anti-German sentiment in America had made beer just as evil as hard liquor was um, because they looked at all of the beer distillers being mainly German and the wheat that was used for making beer could have been made to make bread for the troops. So it kind of grew an anti-sentiment there. So, But you've got these guys that are running off ashore in international waters and they're buying uh all this premium liquor, and they're selling them to these speakeasies. Well, the speakeasies that couldn't afford the premium stuff are starting to get it from bootleggers. And some of the stuff the bootleggers are making is poison. So it's blinding a lot of people. It's maiming a lot of people. It's killing thousands because they're putting anything from carbolic acid to turpentine in it. Uh, they're cutting it with water, they're cutting it with other chemicals, and either to get more out of it or just because they didn't know how to do it very well. And so you wind up having that go on. It also created a problem with the economy. Here's all these bars and saloons that have closed. Here's uh, your distilleries and breweries that have closed down. Uh, so people are out of a lot of good jobs that people did. So eventually... Uh, the 1920s comes along, and everybody is kind of fed up with prohibition. It's hard to get a drink. It's hard to get it legally. You don't know if the stuff you're buying is 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 good or or it's poison. And not to mention the matter, the fact of the matter that America is losing a lot of tax revenue. America lost anywhere from probably 11 million or more dollars in tax revenue during prohibition. So it eventually gets to the point where presidential candidates start running on the prohibition and repeal of it. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt did that in 1932. Um, He runs mainly on the ticket of the New Deal because of the Depression and then runs on the ticket of repealing the 18th Amendment. He wins overwhelmingly in 1932. And then shortly afterward in 1933, uh, Congress does a resolution for the 21st Amendment, which it now has to be ratified by 36 states. Um, Utah would become the last state in the Union in December of 1933 to vote for the resolution and prohibition would then end. Well, all right. Well, uh, I know uh, a lot of our listeners discovered something new today. Uh, I know I certainly have. Uh, so I want to thank all of you for listening. Uh, and you can come um, see Gary, and you can uh, come see the uh, the moonshine still we have on display here. Um, all are welcome, even the carries. Uh, so once again, I thank you all for listening to uh, the Real Foot Forward, a West Tennessee podcast. And we hope to see all of you here at Discovery Park of America real soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Real Foot Forward. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you may be listening. Plan your own adventure to see beyond at Discovery Park of America by visiting discoveryparkofamerica.com. Be sure to also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for the latest updates. Mm -hmm.